Welcome to Rad People I Know. This is a podcast about how extraordinary people are every day. Life is not just about what you do, but who you are in what you do. All of us know a whole bunch of rad people. These are some of mine. I hope you enjoy their stories. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Rad People I Know. Today, I'm very pleased to have as my guests Derek and Rob from Melbourne, um, both musicians that I have had a long history with, and we will talk about those connections. And I'm here to talk about their... um, History together as musicians, which has stretched for many decades now. It is many decades, isn't it? it is. I'm not lying. Yeah. <laughs> um, and focus on two of the main musical uh, incarnations of their pairing, which is Wretched Skinny and Dr. Invisiablo. So welcome, guys. Love, lovely to have you here today. Pleasure, pleasure to be here. It's great to lovely be here. To talk great to see you, Val. Oh, great to see you guys. This is going to be fun. Cool. Um, so I always start the first part of the episode and I, uh, ask people how we met. So, um, I'll start with you, Rob, cause I believe of the two of you, I met you first. So what's your earliest, what's your memory? Um, I'm met? pretty sure. Well, because you, uh, in, in a band with Tom, my brother, um, and the indicator dogs, and he had mentioned to me, um, you know, that he was doing this, um, sort of really kooky sort of crazy music with mad time signatures and um, this classical pianist was the bass player and uh, I was like, wow, that sounds really fascinating. I would love to hear the music and I guess we got talking and um, decided, I was like, man, if we could, because I'm in a band, um, maybe we can get together and do some shows and I think it would have been... Um, I'm not sure if it was Auckland or Wellington where we first met, but I'm going to take a stab and say it was probably Wellington. Um, I don't know. You're if so, yeah, that- I think you're so close. There's a memory I have before that when we were playing and we came through Gisborne, and I think you were in Gisborne. Gisborne. Yeah, and um, you came, I think, to our sound check and um, – like just stood there and then like your face afterwards, you were like, cause it was mental madness. Let's face it. It's <laughs> like jelly bean dance and broken and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I think that was my first memory of meeting you. Um, and then I think we did the shows with Richard Skinny first in Wellington. Definitely. Yeah. And that's when I, yeah. the, the old bodega, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was the first. One. Yeah. 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 The old yeah. bodega. I think, Tom might have... Wasn't it called the... Uh, God, what was it? It was like a V thing, the vault or the... the oh, Val, the Valve Bar, which was... Mm. Before that, it was the... Val, that's right. Yeah. yeah. There yeah. was a couple of shows. I think we might have played two or three shows together, I think, in Wellington. And I think yes, we did. I know we definitely played one in Auckland within Gasoline Alley with you guys as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That was fun. Yeah, I remember um, seeing... I was a little bit... Um, I had a bit of band envy when I first saw you guys because the, I guess the racket that Steve makes on the bass, it's like, I, I really wanted to have that kind of power that he has, you know, and just the, like, you guys are just so raw and, um, but you had such a polished sound together already. Like it was really, you were so tight, you know, even as early on as I saw you. So I'm sure that goes as to how long you've been playing together. So how did the two of you actually meet each other? Well, um, 
I met, uh, there was a, a friend, a mutual friend um, called Lincoln, who's still in Gisborne. He had a band. Mm-hmm. I was, I'd sort of vaguely through, I'd, I'd, before I met Lincoln, I'd, I'd lent my four track to Chris, who was a guitar player from Gimmort. And then little did I know what they were using it for, but I didn't know who his band was at the time, but they recorded their first sort of demo thing on it. And then we sort of, I sort of, I think we did with our old drummer and um, with Steve, as was before Robert joined, obviously. We'd done a couple of gigs with Gamort and stuff like that. And um, eventually we were sort of um, – things that didn't work out with Dan, the original drummer. And we, so we – I think I asked um, Lincoln if he knew any good drummers. And um, he was, and he sort of goes, yeah. And he, and he goes, I know exactly who would be the right one. And he, um, mm. and he gave me his phone number and I rang. And I, I think Rob was the first one to get to the phone. Yeah. Out of him and Tama, you want to yeah. tell? Well, because um, Lincoln gave, because I lived with Tama, who was also a fantastic drummer. Yeah, and awesome. um, Lincoln said, there's two guys I know, one's Rob and one's Tama. So here's the phone number. And Tama and I <laughs> were sitting in our lounge, and it was back in the days when people had home phones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Home phone was just sitting on the coffee table. We were just watching TV, and it rang. And both of us sort of looked at each other, and I went for the phone, and he went for the phone, and I just happened to pick it up first. And, wow. And, uh, I did not know that. Derek's on the other end, and he says, hello, could I speak to Tama or Rob? <laughs> <laughs> Rob speaking, and then it all just yeah. And that was it. Oh, my gosh. That's just crazy. Just at the post. Yeah, it could have been quite easily Tama that got the phone before me. Yeah. And, um, wow. Yes, and so we, we organized a jam, and um, – you know, um, so there's this, this sort of geeky-looking dude showed up, and it was when he had really short hair, and he reminded me of um, Quan Yeomans, the singer of Regurgitator, who I was, a, I was a huge fan of at the time. Yeah. And I thought, oh, he looks a bit like Quan Yeomans. That's pretty good. And, and yeah, <laughs> we started jamming, and it was just it just happened. I think was, we just knew right away this is the right guy for the job. I just and were you with and, Steve on bass at that point? Yeah, he was Steve on bass. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the history of Richard Skinny goes back a bit further than that. Like, started when I was 17, 16, 17, back in New Plymouth. So long, long right. time ago. That, I mean, that's sort of probably relevant to me and Rob meeting. But, yeah, that was when we first met. And, is um, that is Steve, Steve? Was Steve in New Plymouth as well? I can't remember. No, no, no. He was. It, it, I was still the only original member by that stage. Like, we had a, <laughs> right. Started the band with my my two oldest friends from New Plymouth. Um, and just, yeah, just different things happened and, you know. My mum went over, yeah, how yeah, bands go, but for some reason, Richard Skinny just kept going and going, and yeah, different people joined and different people left, but yeah, Steve, the game, when Steve joined, I was just blown away by his. He was just, again, the right guy for the job. He said, yeah, I originally as well, and I think that sort of informs his way of playing the bass. Like, as you know, he's yeah. a really unique player, real hard hitting, you know, really great, yeah. great you know, fantastic musician, great dude. And um yeah. And same sort of thing. So it was just that natural chemistry happened. So we had a first jam and it was just joyful and we just started writing heaps of stuff, you know. Everything just flowed. Nice. How it does with good bands, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. And I do I do want to talk a bit about Rob's drumming because um we borrowed him uh for a bit. We went through a slew of drummers, as you know, we couldn't seem to get keep anyone in the seat <laughs> i don't know why <laughs> but um you know we had we had a some pretty haphazard experiences and i think when rob came on and um you know tom was constantly saying you know how amazing he was he said he and he makes it look so easy he says it's like he's making a cup of tea you know 
And I remember the first time seeing you drum, like you, you literally were like that. You were so still and that you were really a heavy player. And I think what you did for us was you really um, held down the songs. Like the songs I think were, um, because Dan and I were doing the crazy shit we were doing, you know, I think some of the drummers we had were not trying to anchor it back into any kind of feel or groove necessarily. They were following what we were doing and a lot was getting lost. And I feel like, Rob was the first one to really be able to put some heavy, simple beats to what we were doing, mm-hmm. um, but in the weird time signatures that we did. And so it, you made subsequent drummers, and, and actually the, the our main drummer, Aaron Riley, I feel like you definitely helped to make his life easier when he came <laughs> into <laughs> trying to figure when Well, he joined, and in six weeks, we were playing Big Day Out. You know, we had six weeks to learn our shit, so yeah. it was pretty crazy. Well, look, yeah. I've, always, but it, I've always been a fan of Keep It Simple Stupid, and so I've, I've always yeah. loved to just um, – I like I like being weird and, and freaky, but only in sparse little bits. I like mm-hmm. to give a little taste of it. And then take mm-hmm. take it away so that people go, what was that? And mm-hmm. then I don't show them again. If you want to see it again, you got to go back and listen to the song again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect. And uh, what struck you about Rob's drumming when you first heard that? Oh, just it was just so it was again the same sort of thing. You would have noticed like it was a minimal kind of element to his drumming, and it just it, mm-hmm. it hits it really hard. But but in a, but just so effortlessly as well, you know, it's one of those kind of drums yeah. all in the wrists. He's all you know, just really confident and just yeah, it just holds a groove really well. Yeah, I love yeah. like the sort of stuff that me and Steve were into at the time with things like shellac and the Jesus lizard, which informed you know, just if you hear our music, it's a huge influence on what we do. But I just really mm-hmm. yeah, that's what we're looking for, and that's what he delivers. You know, he's, he's just really unique player. You know, there's yeah, I've never yeah. another drummer like him. You know, yeah. Yeah, I loved playing with you all the time, Rob. It was great. <laughs> oh, <thank laughs> I love playing with you and Derek mm. whilst we're um, oh yeah, I love I mean, yeah. up each other's backsides. I I certainly do um, have a lot of fun. It's always good to be challenged, and I like the idea of you know um, getting given a song and sort of going shit. What am I going to do with that? How I mean, <laughs> study it a little bit, and then. Yeah. See what I can come up with. And it's always a challenge, which I enjoy. It's not just, a, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, outro sort of thing, you know? Mm. Yeah. Well, no, it's it it like, well, we, in our short lived little thing, the, the Incendedores with, with yourself. Yeah. Right so that was yeah. really, oh, I love that. Like, the, I know we only got to do the one gig with that, but that was just amazing. That was really good. Was like, Thank you. I loved it too. I really did. And I, I really hope we get the opportunity to play mm. together again. I mean, because it was really for me, I think um, it was like I, I sometimes wanted Indicator Dogs to be that type of a band, you know, and um, and Dan, you know, even now with the newer stuff he's writing, he's going off in a different direction. That's fine. I will always play to it. But I loved, um, I miss the real sort of hard, um, heavy thunderous kind of sounds um, and, you know, that are just so fun to play live, you know, and um, I love like what we did with those covers, you know, made them, heavy and groovy and um yeah it was great anyway we'll, <laughs> we can talk about that again later <laughs> but anyway um so you guys um so derek you said a lot of your influences were bands like shellac and jesus lizard and yeah, um, yeah. That sort of thing. um, um there's there all that whole list steve and i were right until i mean i think when i first started getting into sort of slightly heavy music it was things like ministry and 
even things like mm-hmm. nails and things like that. But I, but where I come from in New Plymouth, it was a really hardcore scene. Like it was mm-hmm. like, like bands like Sticky Filth, um, the Fire yeah. and things like that. And it was a real hard way to start playing, you know, like the hardest crowds I've ever played to in my life, like scary. I'm sure. Like this, what, yeah. what they considered punk rock was kind of more probably closer to things like Gigi Allen and sort of Motorhead and things like that, you know. It was, yeah, really it was extreme. Really, yeah, yeah. Like being a dorky, real immature, so 17-year-old playing to these like really scary sort of semi-skinhead type people or something like that was – it meant I've never been scared of any crowd ever since. <laughs> it's probably a good way to learn. You know? Oh, man. I think we only played New Plymouth like maybe once, maybe twice. Mm. And Rob, what were you listening to at that point? Uh, well, I was heavily influenced by um, really poppy music growing up. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. being part of the 80s, um, you know, The Police, The Cure, um, um, even like stuff like Huey Lewis and the News and if you can play a perfect 4-4 beat without a metronome and keep it in time, then you're, you're on the money. And I think that's what I sort of learned from Stuart Copeland because he's as oh, incredible drummer as he is. He's very flamboyant, but he's also as solid as a rock. And I think that's where I took most of my influence was from him and, mm. um, you know, drummers like yeah i can see that and then try to yeah. sort of develop it when i got into stuff like primus and pantera mm-hmm. and metallica and um mm-hmm. you know the jesus lizard and stuff then it, it was like taking that really simplified beat and then throwing in some curveballs nice that's awesome that was our influences yeah but what rob talks about there was particularly with the police like I'm a huge fan yeah. of that as well. Like I'm a, huge a lot fan, of them. Yeah. I mean, being again kids of the '80s and stuff like that, I always had a, a a real affinity for pop music as well. Like a lot of you know, like, sort of like mm. you know, things like the Stranglers and things like that. Like the sort of po- the punk and post punk stuff. I think um, you know, yeah, the Clash, the Stranglers. I mean, they're, they're and, comes you know, out like as well. Pearl and uh, yes, love it. <laughs> just yeah. yeah, and I was lucky too because I had three older siblings who were also big music fans. And even my mum yeah. and dad, to a lesser degree, um, had a little bit of influence there too. But, you know, I had all of this music that my older siblings were listening to and people my age when I was seven or eight were listening to AHA and, you know, stuff like that. Right. And like that. Uh, they're like, what are you listening to? And I'm like, I'm listening to The Cure and I'm listening to The Stranglers. And they're just going, nice. what? You're weird. That's weird. What's, what are you doing? <laughs> good for you, boy. Yeah, that's that's good when you can get into that stuff at an early age and bypass all that, going through all that crap. I had, I had to go through the crap stage because basically I grew up um, in a very conservative Christian household and had to hide rock albums under my bed. And so by the time I got to college, you know, I was getting, I was just like getting a, uh, immersed in a whole bunch of music that I just never heard before, and there's some sins in there for sure because I was just oh, making yeah. my way, you know. But <laughs> you all have, we, we all have those sins, Val. We, we all have sins. What's your worst sin? Let's everyone name our worst sin. Oh God! Probably, <laughs> I'd have to say shit like um, sort of uh, Phil Collins era Genesis and things like that. <laughs> like you know, oh, that's which I still I, I love now, like Home by the Sea and. Um, 
ยังไงเยอะๆเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเล
you can walk anywhere because nowhere is very far. You know, that's so true of Wellington. Yeah, <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. You, you can't get very anywhere true. without running into seven people you know. And, so, you know, to walk somewhere takes half an hour, you know, because you take who <laughs> you run into. Um, it was a little bit uh, bitchy as well. I remember it being kind of a little bit of a bitchy scene. Yeah. But, you know, but, but no, nah, but generally speaking, it was, um, yeah, it was, a, it was an exciting place to be at the time. I loved it. Mm-hmm. But also, I look at that time in the early, the sort of mid 90s, sort of electronic music was starting to really come into its own sort of, you know, yeah. 96, 97 onwards, particularly in, in that period, you know. And um, it, it became quite unfashionable to be in a rock band at that time. Yeah. Being, well, we did it. It was yeah. really hard to getting people to come to our shows and stuff like that. It was, you know, you know, it was just a couple of years too late or too early or whatever it was. And I remember there was a couple of years I remember being quite bitter about it, like, you know, like. Oh, I was the same. I was, oh, man. All these people. So many clubs. Like, yeah. Slayer fans, that, you know, so the next year they go, oh, I love this ass, you know. <laughs> Answer this all the future, man. Yeah, you know, this jungle house. Yeah, right. jungle's gonna be forever. You know, all kind of shit like that. You know? yeah. It's like whatever, man. It, what, yeah, if, you're, yeah. if you're taking the drugs of the, then that's fine. But yeah, I mean, just seeing so many great venues disappear overnight because it was much, much easier to just get a DJ, mm. and you didn't have to worry about you know PA and all that shit. And so it really decimated the live scene, definitely yeah. in Auckland. Yeah, definitely. There was only then maybe a couple places to play. You know. Yeah, and I. I, I knew I knew quite a lot. Well, actually, just about at least fifty percent of my friends, my closer friends, were either DJs or wanting to become DJs. Mm. Yeah, that's right. It's just unbelievable. Like even you know, sort of people that I knew really didn't have any major musical talent whatsoever. Mm-hmm. They were sort of like, "Hey, this seems like a thing to jump on," and it's actually relatively simple to. Well, house music was huge in amongst my friends, and so house music was pretty easy to mix and to crossfade and all that. So it's just as long as you can keep a solid beat, you can easily become a DJ, and so a lot of people were doing that, and I was like, it was, yeah, it was crushing the scene quite. It's all crushing. Yeah, it was quite, it was, you know? I always thought it was quite, I mean, it was probably just me being bitter and, you know, but it, 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 it all seemed a bit shallow and pretentious as well at the same time, the whole kind of, you know, because it it wasn't like there was a huge abundance of drugs to take in Wellington at that time, you know. The, well, I mean, they, and like, they were bloody expensive, yeah. my dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. of that, like, was like, you know, people would pay like a hundred, hundred and fifty bucks for, you know, like fucking crazy shit. Like, That's crazy. That's yeah, crazy. you have to be pretty fucking well off to be really enjoying that scene, you know, like you know. Well, and, that, and it was very much a, an affluent music style. You know, the gigs were you know, much more flamboyant. There was no dirty, you know, back alley DJ gig that happened, you know, oh, yeah, and, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, instantly you're like champagne and glitter and, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. ecstasy, you know, it's really got that yeah, whole. And all of a sudden you go to a cafe and they're giving you mints on toast, but they've called it some fancy French name. That's right. Like, <laughs> This is just mints on toast, dude. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> <laughs> You're just playing. Yeah. And me and something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I know. During that time, it was, well, because it was right before we, well, we were signed during that time. And it was right before we released the album. And it was it was hard, you know, because you're just looking at a situation where, you know, is anyone going to come to see a rock show? Probably not. You know, I mean, it was, we had our, um, we ended up having our album launch party at uh, the strip club, the white house. Cause we thought 
people come to that, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that we actually had the strippers open for us. So oh, these awesome. were like, yeah, it was, uh, he didn't get booed off and then strippers, get the strippers <laughs> <laughs> gone. <I'm> like, yeah. <laughs> Bring back the strippers. <laughs> I've got this incredible photo of myself backstage. We're backstage with the strippers, right? They're all makeup and getting ready. And you can see like me and like there's Dan, Dan's next to me. And I think um, the singer at the time, which wasn't Tom. And like, I'm looking at the camera and they're like all off looking at the side at like, <laughs> just a classic photo. And here's, our, here's the band getting focused before they go on stage, you know, <laughs> classic photo. Nothing better than to watch, a, watch some strippers get ready before a live performance. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So um, let's talk, I want to talk about some of the songs I'm going to play. So um, so did you, you guys didn't actually release anything as Richard Skinny, did you? I think it came out on a couple of compilations and I think we put like, our own CDRs, we sold at a few gigs. That, like Rocha Cola, I think we actually sold, like, we'd, like you know, cause that was, you just burn one disc. Nothing, nothing, <laughs> nothing. Of, yeah. no official yeah. release because we were never signed. We, you know, just would obviously would, would, would want to, we wanted to get signed, but. It was a weird. It just wasn't happening. Wasn't yeah. And plus, there was a weird sort of thing going on, and amongst all of us, like, oh, we want to be signed, but we don't really want to admit it. We kind of want to be <laughs> famous, but we're too cool to say that that's what we want. Trying to cut ourselves in the foot a few times in that respect. But, yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, and I think at that time too, you know, not only was music, um, rock music, was was having a bit of a downturn, but also the music was industry was just starting to be at the forefront of the digital shakeup. And I think nobody really understood what that meant because Napster was around at that point. And I think everybody all of a sudden went, Holy fuck, like what's happening. And so even, you know, you might have a budget to sign some smaller bands that you want to kind of develop. And all of a sudden you're like, well, well, I don't know if that's a good idea anymore yeah. you know, because you can't even support your major acts that are on the label. You know? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I, um, I've i chosen, the first track I want to play is uh, Six Miles High. So tell me about this track. Who wrote it? Well, Steve, lyrics? I think Steve wrote the lyrics to this one. Um, it was an excuse to use a slide guitar. <laughs> I think we'd, I'd just started using a slide guitar at that point. Um, but it was basically, I think, from memory, it was about a friend. Because, uh, like, um, I don't know. Um, well, basically, I'm not sure if, I always took it as it was... I don't want to drop a minute, but I, I always took it as a, a, a being a sort of a story about himself. And right. we were, you know, we were experimenting a lot with drugs and different things. And obviously speed and methamphetamine was um, a fairly popular drug to do it, Especially if you're a rock and, rock and roll because it pumps you up and you just kind of go, ah! And that's yeah. really kind of what it was like. It's like getting very high in a sense and just sort of the view from up here is incredible because I'm I'm so high. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think the um the, the you know no one can see me, no one is listening, kind of thing. it's also the downside of it as well. You know, just the, the the ups and downs of drug use and like, you know, the the fact that it can be quite a lonely thing as well. I think, you know, that's the yeah. no one talks about when outside the glamour and, you know, they're kind of like, it's so rock and roll, man. But then the kind of embarrassing, <laughs> lonely stuff that goes with that as well. I, I think that's what Steve was getting at. It's a great song. I, I love what it's about. But I think it was also yeah. about a friend of his as well. 
I don't know if I should name him, but you know. Um, but yeah, I think there were some heavy stuff. Where he he would sort of he'd got quite much more. You know, he would became a heavier user in that time. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I remember like a brick being. I used to live across the road from him. Remember seeing a brick get thrown through his bedroom window from someone he owed money to or something like that. And like that's you know that was kind of what was going on at the time. So yeah, I think that's what it was about. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Just wow. All right. Well, let's take a listen. Okay. Cool. So I'm just going to play through the track now. Uh, six miles high. Thank you. 
back memories. Um, we, we are going to play another couple tracks from the Wretched Skinny days, but one of the things I wanted to ask you, because you guys, um, your live sound, you know, it has a certain energy and power about it. Um, do you ever feel between the two bands that it was ever captured like better um, in one iteration uh, or one incarnation than the other? Do you ever yeah. feel like that was really captured of you guys? It's a good question. I think there's the recording we did um, uh, in Melbourne, there's a, which I think is amongst the stuff that I would have passed on to you, um, was live and raro. Yeah, live and raro. It was a New Zealand drink, you know, yeah. raro, you know. Yeah, but um, yeah, yeah th there's th that live recording. I think just caught it really nicely. That 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 was a that's a pretty good example yeah. of uh, I think. Yeah. But yeah, but I know what you mean. Like it was it was always I always felt like studio stuff never quite really. Yeah, it always seemed a bit, you know. But that's also the psychology of it as well. I think as you as you grow as a musician, the more you used to it, you got to realize that you. Like when you're young, you sort of go into a studio. You know, you're on the clock and you're paying for it and you're freaking out about it and you, and you sort of you sort of forget to be loose and, you know, and, and yeah. get mistakes a little bit and, and just let the human part of it, you know, do its job, you know, whereas I think, you know, and often the, the end product ends up, you end up just being this real kind of flat kind of, you know, it's, it's not, doesn't capture the energy of it, you know. It doesn't have the same energy. Yeah. 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 I think, I, yeah, I think we, yeah, we found out like, because we're often we're recording, we'd be nervous and, you know, mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, yeah. trying to get, get watching, the, watching the pennies and the clock kind of thing. And also, too, like um, recording with lots of different um, engineers uh, over the years, mm -hmm. they all had their own sort of particular style and how what they thought should be more prominent and the sounds that. Yeah, exactly. And like I was, you know, to be quite honest, at that point, I didn't really give a shit. I was like, I just want to record it and I want it to sound good. Um, yeah, job is to play the drums, so just make them sound good. And Steve and Derek had a bit more hands-on with like getting sounds and stuff happening. I think if, in hindsight, if I could go back now, I would have more input. I'd have a little bit yeah. into what when he's playing me the drum tracks. Is that how does that feel to you? I was, you know, I'd be like pick that up more, drop that out, etc., etc. Yeah, back then I just didn't. Yeah. There was, um, yeah, I thought that because uh, I had only started playing bass like a year before I joined Indicator Dogs. And so I was still very much like trying to prove that I could actually play the bass, you know. And there were a lot of, you know, I did a lot of um, harmonizing to Dan's things. And I didn't appreciate sometimes how some of the frequencies cancel each other out. So there's a lot of intricate stuff that I did that I felt you could hear live. Like I definitely know you mm. could hear it live, and, mm. but it didn't translate into the studio very well. Yeah. And um, particularly on the first record for songs like Broken and Zookeeper, I feel like there's some stuff that I'm, I would have liked to be more prominent. And there was, there was only one thing I fought on the first album. And it was, uh, cause I like to do different patterns with whatever harmony I'm doing. So if there's four cycles or something, mm. I might choose a different accent note on, one and three or two and four, whatever. And so I had a dissonant, it was uncontained within the box, and I, I played a dissonant note um, two times through the four, you know, four time cycle. And Malcolm's like, he goes, that note, he goes, I don't think it works. I'm like, it totally works. Like, <laughs> it's in the next round, and it's like, the note is staying. I said, it totally works. Mm -hmm. And it was supposed to be in there twice, and he settled for once. And then years later, he came to me and he goes, you know, 
He goes, that note really does work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Go with your gut. You know? Go with your gut. Exactly. You were right. Yeah. I always, thought, I always thought you were playing with, along with Dan. I thought you comp- I've always thought you compliment Dan, you know, to get you both of you compliment each other really well. And I think that when we jammed together as DNC Indoors, I think we even talked about it a few times. The, what, the fact you harmonize mm. over, over a lot of what the guitar lines do and you don't just, you know, don't, you, you're not just sticking in the. You know the the boring sort of root note kind of stuff. You sort of play into the really interesting stuff, yeah, which not, I always liked about your playing. You're you not know. pulling an Adam Clayton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not pulling an Adam Clayton exactly. <laughs> oh my god, that's funny. Well, you know, I mean, I used to get, I used to go to shows, and you'd leave Auckland, and you'd be somewhere like New Plymouth, and a dude would come up to you, and he's like, "Wow." you're really good. You use all four strings, you know, and I'm, and you know, I know he's only saying it to me cause I'm a chick, you know, <laughs> you'd never go up to a dude and be like, man, you use all four strings. That's amazing. And, um, and so I did, you know, I, I know a lot of it was definitely what I heard. I feel that, um, you know, I had to learn to be more simple in, you know, later songs and, and understand that, you know, not, not everything that I play has to be like a melody line against the guitar. Which, so I, there was, I still kept that element, but, um, you know, made other things simpler and I think it was better, you know, and I just, yeah, I wish I would have had a longer, I wish I would have started playing the bass way earlier and yeah, I just would have been fantastic. Anyway, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) So the next song, uh, the Burger King, tell me about that song. Yeah. Well, it was based on a, on a real event. No, a lot of those songs, they weren't necessarily about serious things. They'd just be things we found funny or just some silly incident. You know, I, I, I'm quite a fan of songs that don't have to have deep meanings or anything like that. They can just be – it's just the excitement of the song should do the job and it can just be something really simple. A lot of our songs would be one word, you know, repeated a lot and things like that, you know. They meant nothing. They, meant, they really meant nothing. It was just, they were just sort of another – I might have been scatting or something, you know, like, you know. You know, but um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Burger King was based on. I think me and Steve were there was a Burger King down the road from where we used to rehearse. And of course, you know, we being stoners and getting the munchies, we'd go down and get some Burger King, some big day. And I remember there was a, at the time, you know, those cardboard crowns you used to be able to get at Burger King. <laughs> you used, oh yeah, you used to the kids, and there's this dude who was just off his face, and he and he put one on. He was like, and he was, he, he was just tripping balls or something. He was on something, and he was like. And she goes, I'm the Burger King. I can eat anything. You know, and I just went on the ground laughing about it. Like it was just funny. And hence a lyric was born. Yeah. That's, all, that's all it was, just about this, this the story of this dude, you know, realizing he's the Burger King. <laughs> 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 yeah, announcing it to the world, you know. Yeah. That's funny. Before I play it, I have a funny story about that. So one of our songs contained within a box, we got to like, you know, the critical sort of bridge with the whispered vocals and Tom didn't have any lyrics. And so he literally picked up this um, cardboard box that was in the rehearsal room. And the words were to continue installation, apply template to the rear of the, and that was all that would fit in that place. And he, <laughs> that was what he did. He just took them off of that, which I think then became the name of the song. Was that yeah. the name of the, like, everything else was his lyrics. And then it's like, pff, I don't know. I'll just sing this. I'll just sing this. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> To add to that, we, we got some we got some pretty cool song titles just by accident that meant nothing to do with the song, but <laughs> we were actually doing in that, Auckland in yeah. Auckland with yeah. you guys. We were at Dan's house, all of us, and we'd written a song, but we didn't have a title for it. And we were playing it that night, and you know how Dan's into architecture, he's an architect, all that kind of stuff. 
Um, he had lots of yeah. architectural magazines and he picked one up and it said quite possibly an inspiration from Tuscany. <laughs> and he was like, <laughs> I, was like this cool. I remember this. Yeah, yeah. So we nabbed it oh. and called our song that straight away. I remember Dan looking at me going, Dan, <laughs> you're because he said it in that voice, quite possibly, an inspiration from Tuscany. Yeah, like, yeah, I remember that episode. That's hilarious. Yeah, that was, yeah, oh yeah, that's, yeah, just silly song titles yeah. that come up like that. Yeah, yeah. Just, that's yeah. awesome. That's good. All right, well, let's listen to The Burger King.
It's funny, funny listening to that. I sort of realised like all the bits that we sort of like have erroneously ripped off of other bands. I thought that, that the, the end of "Surprise You're Dead" by Faith No More. I think that's what we were. Oh yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Channeling at the end of that one, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I love I love that song. Oh, Classic yeah. song. How long since you guys have listened to some of this stuff? Wow, it's been a while. Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the lyrics, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's actually what you were saying. Mm. Yeah, I, I always loved your guys' lyrics, though. Like, I thought there was some real clever stuff in there. Um, and I, and some, there are some lines I want to talk about in the um, in Doctor Invisiablo uh, song as well, but uh, songs that I chose. Um, but yeah, I always thought your lyrics were just really clever without like trying to be clever or something you know what I mean very like there's and there's a lot of especially through the Dr. Invisiablo stuff there's a lot of um social commentary with songs I think like Lucky Hard for those who sit you know it was slightly becoming a bit more sort of um mature and yeah yeah sort of, let's give it to the man <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's what you're doing anyway, really. I mean, like, like yeah. I always feel you don't need to be too, you know, didactic with, you know, what you're saying, you know, because what you're trying to, you know, like the fact you're even playing this kind of music, you're not mm. to, to, to win friends and influence people kind of thing. You're doing it, you know, it's, it's you know, it's an expression of how, how, how the, the absurdity of the world around you and all the things that are annoying and it's a healthy way of dealing with it, I think, you know, and hopefully, you know, that, yeah. that's, that's what it's really about, you know. Yeah. There's um, there's a guy, uh, speaking of the absurdity, I'm just going to do this one tangent, but there's a guy that I read uh, called Luke O'Neill, and he'd been a freelance journalist for you know many big publications that you would recognize, like the New York Times and, and things. And he does a blog now called Welcome to Hell World, and he's written a couple of books. And um, it's like, it's the, it's the most uplifting sort of despair. Like there's stuff that you just like read and you're like, man, this is so fucked up that the world is like this, you know, and it's, um, but it's also surprisingly hopeful, but I love the way he writes. I'll have to send him to you. It's, it's yeah, mm. really fantastic. Mm. But, like when you talk about the absurdity of the world, boy, yeah. he knows how to, sure. how to go. Okay. So to round out the wretched skinny set, I've got a song called Roach Cola. <laughs> Tell me about that one. <laughs> um, Again, I think it's a bit of a dig at, you know, like Coca-Cola, obviously, the sort of the consumerist kind of thing. It's something as disgusting as cockroaches and cola, I suppose, you know. But um, it, it, started, it all started really like this is, this is a bizarre story, actually. But, like, we, were, we played a few gigs up in Gisborne, and um, at the time we stayed in a friend, Sue's house, I think? Yeah, a friend of ours' house that was cockroach-infested. Yeah, and she, she just had the, the – it just been sprayed, you know, so – and, and the, you know the gizzy cockroaches, those big tropical ones, are big, massive. Yeah, you know, have real body mass. You know, like you know. Yeah, and, yeah. And I just remember that time we were staying there, we were all sleeping on the floor and stuff like that. And like, but I remember in the middle of the night, I, I'm, I swear to God, I could hear it falling. Like that, obviously, they were all, slowly, all the cockroaches are so slowly dying and stuff. But I remember this, like, I, I heard, I swear to God, like a whistling through the air, and this, and it just landed right on my head, and I was like. Argh! Oh. Like cockroaches are one of the few god oh, creatures that I just can't stand. They just they, they, they just freak me out in all the worst ways. Yeah, like spiders, oh, I, I, they don't bother me at all. But yeah, but cockroaches, man, I just they really bother me for some reason. And but yeah, well, that- we, we we ended up sort of like 
I think Roach a Cole was just a, I don't know, just sound like a funny name for a song, I think, you know, but, um, but we ended up like for a photo shoot idea, we collected a whole ton of these dead cockroaches and we were going <laughs> to, <laughs> we're going to use them for the album artwork. Really bad. <laughs> I, was, I was my flatmates at the time. I was living with these two girls, Heather and Ange in Wellington, and God knows how they put up with me. But I, I, I'd collected this huge jar of cockroaches, like, you know, and um, I, I sort of, you know, being an absent-minded idiot, I kind of left them like in the jar, kind of reeking like. And these two girls were just like, totally just like when they discovered what the smell was, this jar of dead cockroaches. I was like, what? Oh my God. Yeah. It's art, girl. Come on now. It's art. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Didn't they see that? You know, like, you know. Honestly, yeah. Yeah. yeah, there was that. No one understands me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, that was sort of the roach. I don't know. I think just the, the grotesqueness of. We wanted um, to get a photo of it. So, we wanted to. So, we thought, oh, we'll, we'll take the cockroaches back to Wellington, then we'll get it. We'll go out to the yard and we'll pull them all out onto a sort of a, a mirror, a mirror or something, and we'll just get some photos and we'll use that as the as the album album artwork. Yeah. That's great. And as soon as we took the lid off, it was just like, yeah. And we oh. We couldn't even really sort of. I think it. we did. We got the album done. Okay, it was just, it was just, it was a most. Of, I think we used it on. Some of the CDRs, of the demos of that stuff that you got there, I think that was on the cover of that. But it was like, yeah. let's get these photos done real quick. <laughs> Holy crap, man. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. Okay, well, the the most vile experience of photographing album artwork ever was inspired <laughs> by this track. Animals, probably. <laughs> yeah. Road to Cola.
<laughs> well, I must say the lyrics make a lot more sense now. Yeah, literally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so many years too. Yeah, yeah. Literally had a jar full of cockroaches. Yeah, so that's that's possible. <laughs> Yeah, somewhere along the way, you got a little bit more socially minded and started writing about, you know. <laughs> yeah, just like, no, that's funny. Yeah, just, just a grotesque experience in every way, really. Yeah. In every way, absolutely. Yeah. So um, this concludes the uh, wretched skinny portion. So, I, But I do want to talk about the transition. So was it at this point, you know, what made you guys decide to go to Melbourne? Did you decide you were going over as Wretched Skinny? How did that whole yeah. move to Australia um, well, eventuate? We kind of, we, we broke up, I think, sort of beginning in, because I know Rob went up to play with you guys, I think. Yeah, he left to play. That's right, 99, Rob. I think he came to play with us. Yeah. Just, just, I think, yeah. but it was around about, it, it was sort of, you know, quite serendipitous timing for Rob at the end of the day, because we, we were sort of, me and Rob, uh, me and Steve had fallen out pretty hard. We had a pretty... Tempestuous kind of relationship as friends, you know. We'd known each other a long time, but that was part of the whole vibe of the band. Like we, you know, we, the joke was it was like rock paper scissors, like the three of us, you know, like yeah. always be one person getting stacked on, and you know, one person getting picked on. You know, it'd be me sometimes, it'd be Steve other Mostly times. It was me because I was the new guy. <laughs> yeah, you were the new guy. Yeah, yeah and, and like Steve and I could, we, we could all be really cruel to each other. Like you're just kind of like you know. You know, toughen up kind of attitude. Like we'd always be taking the piss out of each other, really hardcore. But um, but yeah, me and Steve fell out over a lot of different things. Um, and yeah, just the band sort of folded around about then. And um, yeah, ninety nine was I remember it was a bit of a bleak year for me. I, I had another band going at the time that kicked me out around about the same time. <laughs> like I was kind of like the guy with no band for a while. I remember I was quite miserable. Oh, oh you know, yeah, you got to go through these things. It's good, it's healthy at the end of the day. But um, what happened was. Shortly before I I moved to Melbourne, I wasn't really planning on moving to Melbourne for any specific reason. I had a bunch of friends um, in other bands like Empty Quarter, and they were really close mates of mine that were that happened that did make the conscious move to Melbourne to sort of make it in the bigger city. Melbourne's got a really really great music scene. It is, and just to this day, still really one of the best in the world, in my opinion. But um, yeah. but yeah, I was just going to stop and see them sort of stay in Melbourne for a couple of months and then go on to Europe because I was originally born in the UK and I was in a that was back when your UK citizenship meant you could go anywhere in Europe, which you can't do now. <laughs> nice yeah, country, that's right. You know? but, but yeah, like yeah. I was, I was, but I just fell in love with Melbourne. Like, but I'd be but prior to going to Melbourne, um, me, Steve, and Rob just happened to get together for a, one last jam, just just for fun, as the three of us. We, mm -hmm. we sort of, you know, me and Steve had sort of patched things up, and we even did a, a, a Steve Albini tribute band. And that was kind of a thrilling <laughs> thing. It was called. Um, the Dog and Pony Show, funnily enough, named after one of their songs. But we did anything related to anything we could think of that was related to Steve Albini. So there was the Jesus Lizard, Zinni Giva, you know, obviously Big Black, any, any, anything yeah. used to be in. And it was just a really great band. That kind of healed the rift between me and Steve. And Rob just happened to be in Wellington. And we got together and had this jam and we just played all of our material together. And it was just magic, like, you know. We just, yeah. It was like we started at like six in the, in the evening or something. And, you know, normally band practice, you know, every couple of hours at least you want to go out for a ciggy break or something like that or, you know, have a rest. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, we just didn't stop for the entire six hours. Like, we got kicked out after midnight because we, we just couldn't stop. And it was just so good. And I'm like at the time going, yeah, man, or so, well, I guess it is what it is. But it really planted the seed. Like, you know, we hadn't found other musicians that really gel with mm -hmm. this well. 
I moved to Melbourne. Um, I fell in love. I'm seeing they used to have these really great um, sort of street festivals in Melbourne. There's one, mm-hmm. you know, the, the you know, Brunswick Street Festival was a big one they used to have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember, that. I remember you know, I, I, it was just sunny and warm, and, and it was just bands everywhere. It was like everyone's drinking on the street and everything. It was just like this is heaven. This is my idea of like perfect city. You know, it's you know, yeah. I just fell in love with Melbourne, and I had friends here and stuff like that, and then. Not long after that, yeah, just, just, you know, I just got an email that Stephen Roberts, I'm thinking of moving over as well, and let's let's get let's get the band yeah. back together, kind of thing. It was a pretty simple thing, really. We mm. were Steve and I were like in Wellington. We we'd gone. We'd sort of. Um, I'd become a part of Steve's other band at the time, which was called Kingpin's Bitch, and so <laughs> oh yeah, the idea was yeah. they before I joined, they dressed up in drag and played rock and roll and um, Steve was the drummer in that band but then he didn't really sort of feel confident and he was like hey man do you want to jump in and play the drums and so we were doing that but um, that was sort of all sort of falling apart plus the music scene was dropping out a bit and he came up to me one day and went why don't we move to Melbourne (laughs) I was like yeah that's a good idea we'd been in wellington for five or six years so it felt like we'd done our time and then we were like well we could you know hook up with derek and maybe see what we can't do with the band and it was just within a couple of weeks we were on a plane to melbourne mm-hmm. yeah. fantastic yeah that's great yeah i mean we we had rob for a very short period because as rob mentioned early in the episode rob's brother tom uh, was the singer of the indicator dogs and um be fair to say that Tom and Rob have a tempestuous relationship yeah. as well. Most you know, love, love, deep love and respect for one another, but probably shouldn't, you know, shouldn't have been in a band together at that stage. Yeah. Like, I think, I think, you know, you guys obviously matured and, and that sort of thing now, but then it was just, um, and you could see what was happening. I felt the dynamic was definitely, you know, Tom was playing the older, I know shit, brother kind of thing yeah. um i was trying to do what you're told sort of um you know you yeah. don't have too many ideas but offer some but don't go too far well, i felt very controlled yeah and i think you know it was definitely at a time you didn't have as much um creative freedom probably as you had with um the other boys you know but yeah i mean for me i loved i loved those gigs and those shows and playing with you and like i said i feel you really um did us uh set us set us a solid footing for future I do, Aaron Riley. I do remember one gig in particular that I really, really loved. It's one of the coolest shows I ever played with the Indicated Dogs. It was at the Hot Rod shop down yeah. Beach Road. And we had the band set up outside the shop but facing into the shop. Yeah. And all the crowd were behind me. Like I had literally, yeah. you know, a hundred people however many there were Right, right at my back, and touching me on the shoulders, patting me on the back nice. when I finished a song. It was just the most bizarre place to be. <laughs> it's like you know, behind me, and I've, I've got no cover. I've got no place to hide. If I make a mistake, everyone can see what I'm doing. So it was really crazy, like brown trousers time. But um, there were hot rocks going off, doing donuts, and while we're yeah, it was really awesome. It was real fun. Yeah, I remember that show. That was wild. That was pretty cool. Yeah, we every now and then we would do, you know, something a bit strange. Like when we all um, 
you 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 left before we did the so you played the drums on dial in in the demo and actually you know i really feel like i do have to give you some credit because what had happened to us at the time was you know malcolm had seen us uh, malcolm also had seen us at the power station and was and we were rehearsing at york street i think um that was our rehearsal space and um he said that if we could get a song on the radio, so he said, I'll bring you into York A, we'll record four tracks. And if we can get a song on the radio, then I'll do your album, basically. And so Dial In was obviously that first um, single, which you, um, you know, you were, that was, that was a new song that we wrote with you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because uh, the other songs had, had already been, you know, previously, yeah. Yeah. you know, been around, but we wrote that song with you and that was the first and probably only single I'm going to say on the radio. And um, we got a lot of airplay on that. And we uh, definitely then were able to make the first album. So I think, you know, you were part of that, that side of it. I don't know if you knew to the degree, but thank you very much. That was awesome. Pleasure. <laughs>
Join us next week where we continue the story of Richard Skinny as they move to Australia and become Dr. Invisiablo. Invisiablo.